Welcome to VSI, Variation Selection Inheritance, a podcast production of the National Science Foundation's Beacon Center for the Study of Evolution in Action. I'm Randall Hayes. I went to the North Carolina Academy of Sciences meeting last weekend to launch the podcast, and there was quite a bit of interest in the poster, but we're far too early in the run to have actual listener feedback at this point. But I did have a student ask a really good question a couple weeks ago in class. I was going on about how people generally get the cause and effect of evolution backwards, like the French philosopher Lamarck, who's always mentioned as the guy who got it wrong by all the textbooks. I personally think that's really unfair, to be remembered only for your mistakes. Because no scientist, no person really, is right all the time. Anyway... My ROTC students tend to quote the Marines, adapt and overcome, like genetic evolution is a form of learning. One of my former ROTC students, Nathan McClough, said to me, but why can't your body just adjust to a vegan diet or to drinking milk or whatever? It seems like it does. Exactly. You work out, your muscles get bigger. You go out in the sun, your tan gets darker. Those things do happen. And environmental input does get recorded in the structure of your body, in much the same way that experiences get recorded in the structure of the synaptic connections in your brain. But here's the difference. Those recordings in the protein structure of muscles and synapses are temporary, like flash memory. As soon as the power goes off, those memories are gone. DNA is the permanent archive, and DNA is read-only. So, Lamarck gets a bad rap for asking the same very good question as Nathan. The problem was that Lamarck didn't test his question. Without that test, there's no real reason to believe that DNA couldn't record environmental events. So, it's probably wrong to blame Lamarck for having that idea. We can only blame him for not testing the idea before he tried to publish it. Another guy, a German, named August Wiesmann, at least according to Wikipedia, did test that question by cutting the tails off of mice for a bunch of generations. He never did manage to breed. So, Lamarck gets a bad rap for asking the very same question So, Lamarck gets a bad rap for asking the same very good question as Nathan. The problem was that Lamarck didn't test his question. Without that test, there's no real reason to believe that DNA couldn't record environmental events. So it's probably probably wrong to blame Lamarck for having that idea. The most we could blame him for is not testing the idea before he started publishing it. Another guy, a German named August Wiesmann, according to Wikipedia, did test that question by cutting the tails off mice for a bunch of generations. He never did manage to breed a tailless mouse because he was cutting the tails, not the genetic instructions for building a tail, which is what gets passed down from parent to child. Coincidentally, at the North Carolina Academy of Sciences meeting, Anthony Atala gave a really cool talk, showed a really cool video, of a salamander regenerating its arm after it was cut off.
which you couldn't really do without those genetic instructions. I'll put a link to that up on the website. But again, as far as we know, there's no genetic mechanism for an environmental event to rewrite your DNA so that learning or memories can be passed down to your children. In other words, exercising can't make your children stronger. There is relatively new science called epigenetics. Epi meaning outside. Where people are studying small chemical tags that get attached to the DNA, which don't change the text of, the, of a gene, but change the formatting of the gene. Sort of like the hypertext tags on a web page that make the text different colors or include a link to a different page. I don't personally know much about epigenetics, but I do know there's a huge amount of misinformation floating around on the web about it, people claiming to cure alcoholism, things like that. So I'll have to punt on that one until I can get an expert on the phone to talk about it more. If you would like to be that EOE, expert on epigenetics, send me an email at bsi.beacon at gmail.com. But for the moment, DNA sequence itself does not record environmental events. If we could rewrite DNA with genetic engineering, those rules would change. Biological evolution might become a lot more like cultural evolution. Cultural evolution is different. You definitely can pass your language or your religion or your political beliefs from your brain directly to the brain of your child. But, and here is the downside from the cultural purity point of view, so can everyone else. Cultural information is contagious in a way that genetic information is not, unless you're a single-celled organism like a bacterium. They trade chunks of GNA all the time. That's one of the reasons that antibiotic resistance can spread so quickly, and even jump from one species to another. But my classroom digressions are not why you're here. Thou wert promised a movie review of Jerome Bixby's The Man from Earth, and thou shalt have it. I stumbled across this little movie on Netflix streaming. Not streaming Netflix, as my nine-year-old keeps reminding me. And I was totally blown away. This is science fiction in its purest form. A manic rush of crazy ideas, one after another, straining against the narrative structure and only barely contained by the story. More on that in a minute. But after I watched it, I googled it. This movie not only plugs into the evolution debates with its story of cavemen and religion, it's an example of successfully exploiting a new environmental niche. A movie made for about 200 grand does not normally find a wide audience, but the producers of this movie embrace the peer-to-peer file-sharing networks as a free marketing scheme. They went so far as to publicly thank the users of BitTorrent for spreading the love and allowed them to PayPal donations, if they so chose, through the film's website. Hey, wait a minute. That sounds like the podcast business model. Oh well, what are you going to do? Speaking of which, we currently have no such PayPal button. But it's an, ob- it's an option I'll look into when the grant runs out. Anyway, 
Back to the movie. The cast is a marvelous Greek chorus of character actors who represent the cliches of college life, including William Catt from The Greatest American Hero as Art, the aging hipster archaeologist on a motorcycle who's probably infamous for sleeping with his students. The current young tagalong's name is Linda, who you might recognize as House's fiance if you watch the show obsessively, which I don't. I had to IMDb her. There's the fussy old spinster, Edith, an art historian, played by Ellen Crawford, Nurse Wright from ER. Harry, the flannel-wearing biologist who laughs at his own jokes, John Billingsley, who I recognized by voice but couldn't place because he wasn't wearing his Enterprise Dr. Flox makeup. There's the tweed-wearing, pipe-smoking, gray-mustachioed psychologist Will, who's done bit parts in about 30 Hollywood movies. And then there's my favorite, the incomparable Tony Todd, who's done a whole load of science fiction TV as well as voicing animation and video games. He plays the cool professor in the denim jacket who's really bitter about our continuing abuse of one another and the planet. If you've been to college, you've met every single one of these people. Oh, and there's the star, a 14,000-year-old caveman named John Oldman, played by some guy I never heard of before. Okay, what was the point of that exercise? That was a quick demonstration of one major way that social animals like humans entertain themselves. The Who Do You Know game, sometimes more formally played as Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. If you like that game, particularly in the unlimited form, when it applies to ideas and not just people, then you will like this movie, because that's what they do. The whole thing is one big Socratic polylogue between John Oldman and everyone else as he answers their questions about his story. There are no creatively transitioned flashbacks to earlier historical periods like you would expect from watching Highlander or some crappy vampire anti-hero. That would destroy the game. Because the chorus, in absolutely classic science fiction horror fashion, do not believe John Oldman's outlandish story about surviving the Pleistocene. If this were a horror movie, like Tony Todd's Candyman series, that disbelief would cost them their lives. If this were real-life science, Harry would not just suggest some blood tests and then shrug and take a drink when John Oldman says laboratories make him nervous. He would go get a needle and take the samples right there at the house. Because scientists do experiments to resolve their doubts whenever possible. But this is a science fiction story translated to the screen. And science fiction is more a branch of philosophy. Like the philosopher Lamarck, who took development towards perfection as the untested assumption he wanted to prove by proposing a logical mechanism for it, science fiction is often pursuing a metaphysical goal. SF deliberately leaves its own questions unanswered because SF wants you to be open, unsure, even a little uncomfortable as you admit your ignorance. That's why the evidence of the alien or the monster always gets destroyed 
or escapes, or hidden away by conspirators in a big warehouse like the Ark of the Covenant. This is something that no real scientist would put up with. Who would believe me? May be the most common sentence in all of SF literature, except perhaps for anything is possible, which is the mantra from the man from Earth. At least three different characters use that phrase, and the movie holds that ambiguity, that tension between possibilities, for as long as possible. Is he really an immortal? Or is he just jerking them around? Wow. I just spent several minutes talking about the film and said almost nothing about the plot. Well, that's because there's not really much of a plot. Most of the joy of this film comes from the ideas that are bouncing around. The heady mix of science, art, and religion. For instance, Bixby reminds us that it was the writer Voltaire who first suggested the universe began in an explosion, long before scientists observed its continuing expansion. The rest of the joy, at least for me, comes from watching the characters react to those ideas. Reaction shots are an old director's trick, but they're used in a specific way here, to capture the social dynamics of this little human tribe. The director habitually cuts away from one of them, from the person who's talking, to check the reactions of the other characters, often more than one of them, just like your eyes jump from face to face as you're deciding who to support during a real argument. He also uses these cuts to reveal the characters' personalities. In fact, you mostly get to know Sandy, the cute art teacher in the white cardigan, through her facial expressions, because she doesn't say much throughout the film. She becomes sympathetic through her quiet confidence, her lack of jealousy at the younger Linda's fascination with Professor Oldman, in contrast to Art's obvious but unspoken jealousy, and her frustration with the rudeness of the fussy spinster Edith. Having cast a mature, 38 years old, but still beautiful actress like Annika Peterson to play Sandy doesn't hurt either. We are wired to like pretty people, after all. They rigged our audience sympathies in the opposite direction by casting her nemesis, the fussy spinster Edith, as an older woman, implicitly acknowledging that one can leverage our ancient human cognitive biases for specific artistic purposes. I have a colleague named Mark Pizzato who studies this sort of thing, trying to optimize theatrical performances to create specific emotional reactions. I'll have to get him on the show at some point to talk about that. But let's return to the fact that the writer chose to make his Christian the fussy older woman. He rigged our sympathies the same way generations of textbook writers have rigged our sympathies against poor old Lamarck by casting him as Darwin's nemesis, when in fact the two never met. Science fiction in general is not friendly to religion, because religion is often about certainty and comfort. And SF is very often about making people uncomfortable, about poking holes in the arrogance of their ignorance. But wait a minute, says the neuroscientist. Let's remember that discomfort releases stress hormones like cortisol. And high levels of cortisol do nasty things. They suppress our immune systems. Chronically high levels kill brain cells. 
We can suppress the very learning we want to encourage by doing it in an overly confrontational way. In the movie, Edith is clearly upset at some of the things that John Oldman reveals about himself. She returns that favor with her crying and her name-calling, raising everyone else's cortisol levels in an unhelpful and unproductive way. But we have to remember that, yes, she is honestly and verifiably being hurt here. Will, the psychologist, points this out explicitly more than once. So when we argue, yes, let's argue with passion and conviction, but with empathy, too. That's all the time we have for this week. Two minutes over, actually. I'm generally targeting about 10 to 15 minutes for now until I find an assistant. Next week, I'll be interviewing Len Testa of the WDW Today podcast. How do you evolve a better theme park experience? Tune in and find out. VSI is produced by me, Randall Hayes, at North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University with support from the National Science Foundation's Beacon Center for the Study of Evolution and Baction. You can find us on the web at variationselectioninheritance.podbean.com. Thanks for listening.